Let's get it. March 27th, 2019. Born the Battle. Brought to you in part by the Department of Veterans Affairs. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you all had a good week outside of podcast land. I know I did. I uh, I signed off on my first home build. So me and the wife are building a house out here in D.C. We are going to use the VA home loan system. If you want, I can share my journey through that here on the podcast. If you are interested in using the VA home loan system, they have information out there in the interwebs at www.va.gov forward slash. It's a forward slash. I checked it. I Googled it. Housing dash assistance forward slash home dash loans. That's www.va.gov forward slash housing dash assistance forward slash home dash loans. Got a little nugget dropped in my lap a couple weeks ago. Forgot to mention it last week on the podcast. I have a very rare interview. It hasn't been shared anywhere in the world. It's an interview conducted by Adrian Cronauer. Yes, the same gentleman who inspired the movie. Good morning, Vietnam! He conducted an interview with legendary filmmaker, actor, comedian, composer, Mel Brooks. The Mel Brooks. And it, it's hilarious. They talk about Mel Brooks' service, uh, his time with the USO, lots of good things. Uh, I have that interview currently in my lap, and I will share this content on one condition. If we can get to 100 reviews on iTunes, I'll release this interview. I'll release the content. Yes, you might say that I am holding it hostage, and rightfully so. It's that good. So after this episode... Go on iTunes, leave a review, help us get noticed in podcast land. And after 100 reviews, I will release this interview. It's hilarious. It's great content. And I can't wait for you to hear it after the, uh, the, uh, after the 100 reviews. All right. What's next? We got a, we got a lot of content today, a lot of content to get through. Uh, next is news releases. News release. <laughs> Just trying to make the boring and entertaining folks. Trying something new. So, uh, today's today I've got two news releases. One on VA 3D printing. It says, for immediate release, VA 3D printing proves more useful for shoulder surgery planning than current visualization methods. In keeping with the VA's efforts to improve healthcare services for veterans, Baltimore VA Medical Center doctors recently demonstrated how 3D printing at VA is more useful for orthopedic surgeons in planning shoulder replacement surgery than previous approaches. In an article published in the Journal of Digital Imaging on February 28th, Baltimore VA Medical Center doctors Elliot Siegel and Kenneth Wang described how CT scan images were used to create 3D printed models of the shoulder. It goes on and it says, shoulder replacement surgery is commonly performed to treat arthritis, which is widespread condition among veterans and 
the general population. However, the small amount of bone at the socket side of the shoulder joint is a major challenge to the long-term durability of shoulder replacements. By allowing surgeons to better appreciate the details of each patient's anatomy, 3D printed models of the shoulder provide an additional tool for surgeons to use in pre-surgical planning, ultimately leading, ultimately leading to longer-lasting shoulder replacements. There's more in the press release, but you know, for, for more information from the VA Maryland Healthcare System, Go to www.maryland.va.gov forward slash locations forward slash Baltimore underscore VA underscore medical underscore center dot ASP. They also have a Facebook at VA Maryland Healthcare System, and they are also on Twitter at MDVAGov. That's their handle. And our last news release is on changes within the GI Bill housing payment implementation, or in other words, the, the VA's, uh, implement, how they're going to implement, uh, making sure veterans are going to get their BAH on time for when they use the GI bill. So for immediate release today, the VA announced that the selection of Accenture federal services, LLC to assist with implementation of benefit payment changes required by the post 9-11 GI bill benefit payments under the Harry W. Colmery Veterans Educational Assistance Act of 2017. Ugh, mouthful. The Forever GI Bill. Effective March 21st, Accenture will act as the systems integrator, coordinating, planning, developing, and integrating testing of all systems associated with implementation. This is to help the backlog of all of the uh, GI Bill payments. With Secretary Wilkie and Dr. Lawrence, the Undersecretary for VBA, are the responsible and accountable officials overseeing implementation. Accenture was awarded the contract to actually enact the implementation. For more information regarding education benefits, please visit www.benefits.va.gov forward slash GI Bill forward slash post 9-11 underscore GI Bill dot ASP. All right, we got the news releases out of the way. We got uh, we got the Crow Hour information out of the way. So today's guest, you know, veterans are sometimes miscast as uh, broken heroes, and by and large, I think that's a flawed stigma. That's why I love finding veterans who are out there working to bridge that that military civilian divide. And this week's guest does just that. And actually, he does it for the second largest privately held company in the United States. He is Coke Industries Military Relations Manager. Our guest was the commander of infantry soldiers in combat and peacekeeping operations. He directed two of the Army's top schools. He commissioned as a second lieutenant in the reserves at the age of 19. He then served in the Kansas Army National Guard, eventually earning himself a regular Army commission. He also has two masters in military arts and sciences. Today, he teaches transition courses, gives presentations, writes about the military career transition, and continues to mentor current and former military service members. He is also involved in the local Wichita, Kansas community as the co-chair of the Community Veteran Engagement Board, and he's a board member of the local Veteran Advocacy Board and a nonprofit called Passageways, and I'm going to let him talk about their mission in his interview. It's really great stuff. So without further ado, I give to you John Buckley II. Um, your bio talked about leading infantry soldiers in both combat and peacekeeping missions. Uh, what, what, what did that entail? Well, I was in the infantry, 
in the Army Infantry, and when I was a company commander in the 101st Airborne Division, we deployed to Iraq back in the 90s. Okay. And so we were one of the first units to deploy into theater. Desert Storm 1. That's correct. Gotcha. Yep. And then um, on multiple tours into Bosnia, into the theater, uh, the first time was more as a operational planner, and the second time was a task force executive officer into the southern portion of Bosnia-Herzegovina. So we okay. were there for, I was involved in the I-4 campaign and then S-4, of course, the implementation force and the stabilization forces. Okay. So so that was in the mid-90s when uh, there was uh, it was a Serbian Bosnia and, and all that was going on? Absolutely. That's correct. And then gotcha. there was a subsequent tour back into Iraq. And then there were a couple of deployments under uh, wearing a NATO hat, um, mostly in, in and around the Mediterranean area. Roger. You um you spoke about, uh, when we talked earlier, you spoke about a, a pretty funny story about a soldier sleeping in the back of a, of a uh, out there in Bosnia. Right. So we were the first combat unit to deploy into Bosnia that was based in the United States. Let me rephrase that. The first combat unit based in the United States that would deploy into and through um, the, inter the, uh, the intermediate staging base down into Bosnia. And okay. so we had to organize all of our equipment and, and it was uncommon for folks to do the cross attachment and, and, and such in the ISB. And so as we were putting all of our combat vehicles, M1 tanks, M2 Bradleys onto the Hets to carry him through Croatia, uh -huh. we lost count of his soldier. We couldn't find him. And oh lo and behold, God. we used the, uh, the, the civilian police in Croatia to, to wave down a convoy, and we found our soldier. He was sleeping on the back of a Bradley and got locked on the inside. I'm sure he got a pretty good talking to over that. <laughs> he did. He did. Uh, his non-commissioned officers made sure that uh, he, they set him straight. That's correct. Discipline was 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 maintained after that. That's correct. <laughs> what um, prompted you to serve? Well, I was I was in high school. I was a baseball player. I had a couple of pro baseball tryouts. Oh wow! I. I Due to some various reasons and challenges, I was never recruited uh, from a from a college perspective. And my goal was to go and play at college and get a degree. I didn't want to go straight into the pros. So, did you have I an signed, offer from the pros? I did not have an offer from the pros, okay. but I, I actually ended up with three three tryouts that summer. But the second two came after I had already signed up to go to basic training. Right. And so I'd, I'd already enlisted and, and joined the Army. And while I was there at basic training, I was given an opportunity to choose an ROTC, two-year ROTC program where I would go off to New Mexico Military Institute. I got an associate's degree and got my commission. So I was a commissioned second lieutenant in the reserves at the age of 19. That and is, I, And that's not normal at all, correct? That's it, pretty, pretty it, rare. That's right. Back in the day, I think there were there were five different institutions that offered that two year program across the country. Wow. I think you're down to four now, maybe even three. While I was at, um, at at New Mexico Military Institute, they had actually canceled their college baseball program, and I had played soccer in high school, so I joined the, the soccer club there. And when I graduated with my associate's degree and my commission at 19 years old, 
a college in Kansas recruited me and offered me a soccer scholarship. So I went off to Kansas and several weeks in, I got injured. And instead of trying to recover and get back on the field, I decided that I needed money anyway. So I joined the (laughs) Kansas Army National Guard and uh, got about three full years in the Kansas National Guard before I graduated and then used my experience to go on active duty and served as an infantryman for 30 years after that. Uh, the rest is history. Um, That's right. So while you were in, uh, who was your best friend or your greatest mar- mentor while you were in? Well, it happens to be the same individual, quite frankly. Um, That's great. I love how that works out sometimes. Yeah. And, and it was actually while I was in the Kansas Army National Guard. So it, it happened that my company commander at the time, he was relatively new as a company commander. He had previously been in the Marine Corps and had two combat tours in Vietnam as a forward observer. So he knew a thing or two about fighting in combat. And he gave yeah. me probably my best leadership lessons ever and he continues to do that matter of fact i spent the weekend with him just last weekend going out hunting with him and and shooting our pistols and doing a few other things just to have some fun but uh he still consider i'm still i i still look to him as a as a as a mentor a brother and and more importantly um a great teacher now i do have to admit though there were there were several others along the way and and but but Almost always, they were my non-commissioned officer. The when I was a platoon leader, it was my platoon sergeant. I, I had fantastic NCOs throughout my entire career, and my battalion command, um, my my battalion command sergeant major was was fantastic. And we were both mentors to one another as well as uh, terrific friends. So I, I I can't forget about them. Of course, of course. So uh, your your mentor, your you know, uh, what was his name? Your gentleman's Gary, name? Gary. Gary. Okay. Now, two questions about Gary. One, did you guys uh, get anything on your recent hunting trip? And two, ex- what what are some of the what's a like? Give me an example of a something he taught you. Uh, the first question is no. <laughs> I think we we uh, we we were doing a little bit too much talking, and we, we I think we stopped in in the woods in his field. He owns a farm in uh, central Kansas. So, uh, no, matter of fact, I think we didn't even really shoot anything, <laughs> but, uh, or shoot at anything, I should say. Um, I understand. <laughs> well, I, I tell you probably the best lesson he ever taught me was, was not when I was a young Lieutenant and, and we had an, a training incident where we had two soldiers, um, overheated to the point where they, they were really suffering badly from, from heat exhaustion. Oh, and wow. my platoon sergeant and the squad leaders were doing the right things, but I diverted my attention to those two soldiers. We were in the middle of an evaluation. We were in the middle of, middle of you know, accomplishing a specific task. And, and he came up. Um, he was not directly involved in the, in the exercise. He was sort of uh, coaching and mentoring. So it was a platoon evaluation. And, and he pulled me aside and he said, hey, you, you've got, uh, you know, 33 other men out here that are waiting for your leadership. You can't put 100% of your focus on these two folks. All the everything is going on, and um, so I think from there that that was probably the best lesson early on in the sense of you've, as a leader, you've got to be able to focus on the mission and focus on on the task at hand. Yes, it's important to be concerned and be involved in any injuries, but you can't let that divert your the team's success. Mission is paramount. True welfare is important, but but mission is paramount. So he taught you that. 
Yep. Yep. I, I think probably the second best lesson. And I, I think I mentioned this the last time we talked was, you know, don't take it. Don't take no from a piss hand. And, um, and you explained that to me, but I, I didn't really get what that was. So for the listeners, what does take no from a piss ant actually mean? So it's, it's don't take no from a piss ant. And I actually teach my kids that. And, and basically uh, the idea is, and, and it's still, I think, still prevalent today. And it happens even in the VA. And that is that uh, the folks who work and try to work very hard at, at doing what they have to do are really have their hands tied due to policy and and they don't interpret policy they follow it to the t and and yeah. and so when you go to get something done invariably you're going to get a no and so the idea is don't ever get don't ever get satisfied with that it's not being disrespectful but sort of along the lines of where there's a will there's a way so so now you've got to figure out how to work towards yes and sure. and that may be you you work with that same individual or you you know very politely go over their heads and, and go to somebody who, who can apply common sense to the principle. So sure. don't get tied down with bureaucracy and, and, you know, if you know it's right and it needs to be done, it's not a selfish thing, but if it's right and it needs to be done, there is a way to get it done and don't just take no from a piss hand. Noted. Um, and your bio had also talked about um, you directed two of the army's most prestigious schools. What were they? The first school that I directed was the Command and General Staff College, and and for those who are not Army, that's the one-year school that every single major needs to go through. Some go through it at Fort Leavenworth, some do it in a distributed learning kind of a format or classroom or a mixture thereof. Gotcha. So it, it really takes those young, or I should say senior captains, brand new majors, and helps them prepare prepare them for the next phases of their military career, where they're going from direct leadership to organizational leadership, for example, working on general staff, officers, staff, and those kinds of things. And then the second school was the School of Advanced Leadership and Tactics. And so that uh, that element provides the common core tactical instructions to every single course that is taught for the captains. So we call them career courses in the Army. Um, so as you're getting your specialty training in artillery or infantry or whatever it might be, mixed in and amongst that are several hours of common tactical instructions, and, and we help develop that and then train the leaders to instruct that. Gotcha. So that's more like uh, training the captain to be like a company commander or a future company commander, Absolutely. correct? Or no? that, that's correct. No, that's exactly Got right. Got you. So you served... Over 30 years or uh, 30 years. Um, so I guess it's, it's obvious to say what prompted your exit to service was uh, was the max time that you could you could serve. That's correct. I, I had thought about getting out on several occasions and we decided uh, 30 years would be a good target. And so, yeah, I was driven. By, my retirement was driven by, you know, completing those 30 years. Yeah, you, you and I talked about your transition a little bit, um, you know, for someone that you, you think that made colonel and, and had a, a career as esteemed as yours, it, it, it didn't go as smoothly as one would think. To try to put that into perspective, so I had those combat deployments that you talked about. Uh, I was a direct, uh, I guess, advisor, if you will, to the chief of staff army as well as to the secretary of the army two years each. Wow. You know, got two master's degrees. I mean, all those things that are really difficult and good accomplishments. 
Nothing, sure. absolutely nothing in my entire military career was as difficult as transition. Now, mine was slightly more complicated than most in that I had a final deployment to Iraq thrust into the middle of my timeline, but trying to work sure. on my, my resume and interviewing skills in the middle of Iraq just, just isn't the preferred or recommended way to do this. But nonetheless, <laughs> it, it was very, very complicated, and, and it is a foreign environment for all of us, and it presents numerous challenges. Absolutely. What? So, you know, including Iraq, what are some of the challenges? How much time did you have uh, to leave active service upon your retur- your last deployment when you got back from your last deployment? I I had from about a, just under eleven months, if I remember correctly, as to when I returned from Iraq to when I actually started working. Okay. So, so you did thirty years. You um. You you transitioned out. What was your next step once you once you got out? Well, I, I was very fortunate in um, in that I landed a, a fantastic job with Coke Industries due to some changes in the law and and policies associated with um, VEVRA, the Vietnam Era uh, Veterans Readjustment Assistance Act. I mean, it drove a lot of companies to include Coke Industries, which is a, a government contractor, to to certain you know, to aspire to, to hiring veterans in a certain amount of those. So they created this role and, and I was the first one to fill it. What was so the role? What's the, the, what, the role? role? The, the title of the role is called military relations manager. And so in simple terms, I really am like an in-house consultant to all the various Coke companies on their military veteran recruiting and retention programs. And on the oh, flip wow. side, I also coach, teach and mentor and build products to enable other military people to transition into the private sector. Got you. What is the difference between recruitment and retention? Because you, you you always mention both in your job title. I mean, from a business perspective, you know, recruitment is, is a little bit of attracting someone's attention to your company and to the opportunities and then going through the, the steps of uh, applying, interviewing, and getting an offer, negotiating, and, and being hired—that that to me is is a broad definition, you know, and maybe the results of recruiting. But sure. then the retention piece is after you've bring some, you brought somebody on board. How do you keep them in your company? And it's okay. it's more than just you know tying them down to a to a desk and saying you're going to do this for the next twenty years. Right. You know, there there's a lot to it. It's it's all about enabling their self-actualization. It's it's about helping them uh, identify more or less their career path and, and then helping them get there to get that self-actualization. So um, there's a lot that, that goes along with, with retention. But the, the challenges for the military veteran and their spouses, quite frankly, are are unique and they're different from practically any other professional that, that we have out here. So so there's there's got to be some special attention, if you will, uh, in a, that that is you know focused on those particular retention programs that that are unique and and tailored to the military veteran. Sure. So basically, you're you're not only uh, basically helping the company you're also helping the veteran it's, it's a two-way street almost you have to as far as learning how to how to interact with the villain with a veteran in a civilian sector 
Absolutely, because what the way we we the way I I guess you could say I analyzed the situation using some of the the strategic and operational planning that I did. I, I started out with trying to define the problem, and so we identified seven barriers, if you will, to transition. And again, my my definition of transition is the military to civilian transition, which encompasses more than just signing a contract and starting a job. It's actually getting into a career and and being successful. So it, it's a broader definition. And so our programs focused on that. One of the biggest barriers to transition I've defined as the communication cultural gap. And quite frankly, it's an abyss. And sure. so, so it, it, the way we've approached it here at Coke is to attack that gap from both ends, which means providing tools, providing assistance, coaching, teaching, and mentoring the veteran job seeker. But on the other side, it's also educating business leaders, talent directors, HR leaders, recruiters, and others to, you know, confront those barriers and and create some unique measures to help the veteran overcome those barriers. But then there's a third component, and that is how do we leverage, quite frankly, the veteran employees that we have? I, I rely heavily on a quote that was made by Arlie Ermey. Many years ago, the famous actor, oh, yeah. and you should remember him, he's a Marine. So. May he rest in peace. Yes. Um, and so in an interview, he mentioned that too many Americans think that the VA takes care of our veterans, but in reality, it's veterans who take care of veterans. And sure. so I have not walked the hallways around Coke Industries or really anywhere that I've been where I don't run into a veteran who says, well, how can I help? And they mean that sincerely. And so within the capacities that, that they have uh, based on their own employment re, you know, requirements and responsibilities, they contribute in some way, shape or form. So how do we That's educate great. them to do that? Sure. You were talking about the the communication back gap a little bit. You know, I, was, uh, I think I shared this story with you, but I'll share it with the listeners that uh, uh, after my first week at uh, my first job outside the military, I had my boss come to me and he goes, heard you curse a lot. Heard you curse a lot. <laughs> and, and he goes, you know, I told him I hired a Marine, but you know, and I was like, yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs> kind of- yeah. I, I guess you could say that's a good analogy, but uh, it's, it's deeper than that, quite frankly, sure. but, it, but it does. It, it, it is part of it is, is the language and, and it's sometimes simple. It's sometimes humorous. Um, our word choices is, is a little bit different. And culturally, when we say something, it's a little bit different. So, sure. but, but it is deeper than that. It's, it's adjusting to the leadership Absolutely. functions and architecture that's out here. It's different. It's not hierarchical in nature. Um, it's, it's all about the tribe and the perimeter. I, I usually call it and refer to it as a perimeter. So in the military, you, you, you often worked from or out of a perimeter and, and the perimeter was a group of people. In some cases you couldn't even see or hear or communicate with them in any way, but you trusted them and you relied on them. It's always about sure. the success and survival of the team, not any individual. But in the private sector, it is more individual, more independent. It's not better or it's not wrong, it's not right, but it's different. And how do you adjust to that? How do you um, interpret and, and perceive the, um, the mission focus, if you will, of, of some other folks, it's, it's, it's a different attitude. So you really have to, to understand it, to be able to adapt to it. 
just a different culture. You know, uh, you were talking about what Arlie Army said. Um, what was that again? Um, many, many Americans believe oh, that the VA takes care of veterans, yep. but in fact, veterans take care of veterans. And I'm paraphrasing. Those are not as exact. Sure. And I, I, th- I think as a veteran, I can agree with that. I think the best way uh, the VA can be is a, is a bridge from for veteran to veteran, you know, for veterans to help veterans. I think that's the best way. Sometimes the VA can be effective in, in helping the community. Yeah. And it's it's not meant to be that the VA is, is not, you know, worth its weight in gold because it is. It provides a tremendous service. But it's it's, for example, and, and the reason I use that is in the workspace, we try to assign a veteran as a mentor. You know, you talked about Gary as being my, my mentor and friend. And so it doesn't have to be somebody who is your professional mentor, somebody helping you through your career field, but it could be just another mentor in the space that you work in that can help you understand things. Something as simple as making, you know, coordination to reserve a conference room, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, trying to, trying to coach somebody from always saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. Um, and, and actually call people by their first name and, you know, those little things that, that may help you assimilate into the into the private sector. Makes sense. What is something that you've learned that what is something that you learned in your time in that you apply to what you do today? Well, I, I still live by my motto of don't take no from a piss ant, but <laughs> but I don't have too many piss ants, at least not in Coke Industries. And I haven't really seen a lot in the private sector where they don't necessarily have the same bureaucratic challenges. But I think um, there, there's quite a few, I think, that I rely on, but but a lot of them come down to the soft skills. Um, I was in between my infantry command and, and stints as I got older. Of course, the Army always moves you to and from staff. So you're working on somebody's staff and you're not the decision maker. Sure. And so how do you present options? How do you present bad news? How do you present, you know, conclusions and facts? So the ability to, to speak concisely, directly um, is, is a strength. I think the ability to analyze and see cause and effect relationships. So they're the soft skills. And, and quite frankly, I think far too many veterans don't put emphasis on that they, they try to look at their hard skills. You know, I turned a wrench here. I fixed that there. I, I, I was an engineer or whatever. And, and those are important. But, but quite frankly, what gets you noticed is your ability to do and to apply those soft skills. I, I'll tell you one story if I have time. So, sure, absolutely. So I believe I was here at Coke Industries for less than a month. And I was asked by my immediate boss to, to do something. I forget exactly what it was. And so about five days later, I come back in and I tell him I'm ready to present, uh, you know, sort of the plan to him. And he says, OK, great. We're five minutes in and I, I laid out some things to him. Bottom line up front, just like we're always taught. And sure. immediately he interrupted me and said, OK, wait, wait, before we go forward, what we got to do is we've got to take this and present this to the lawyers. And get, I, I already got that done. I already got their chop on it, you know, military terms. He didn't know what chop yep. and everything else. <laughs> and and then he says, okay, great. Okay, now we got to make sure we got it to comply. I already got it to compliance. Okay, what about, mar- I already got marketing. So I understood, at least from what I'd learned as a staff officer, that you've got to get it fully coordinated and staffed before you present it to the boss for execution. Absolutely. And, and a lot of folks... In at least in the private sector, don't necessarily do it. It's more of a collaborative in the process and, and discovery. Again, not bad, not wrong, 
just different. But the soft gotcha. skills that I demonstrate on a near daily basis is what most people notice. And I'm telling you, from a veteran who's looking to get into the private sector, if you can amplify and demonstrate those soft skills in your interviews or anything after you've worked or got, got hired, you will stand out amongst your peers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so in your, in addition to what you're doing with uh, Coke Industries, uh, you spend a lot of time servicing veterans uh, in your local community, correct? That's correct. So, so Coke Industries is really uh, big on employers making a difference in the communities in which they live and work. And so I took that to heart and I joined a group of veteran, mostly volunteers who were looking to solve some problems and and we sort of formed a relationship similar to the CVEBs that the VA pushes and, and encourages okay. sponsors. So it's we call it the Veteran Advocacy Board. And so gotcha. I ended and up the- becoming the co-chair for this Veterans Advocacy Board here in Wichita. And from that, we created two sub-communities uh, or sub subcommittees, I should say. And the first one focuses on veteran employment. And so okay. I... With a with a Marine friend that I made at works at the Workforce Center, Chris and I have put together this this subcommittee, and we've we've gathered a lot of other local businesses and companies, and and the VA and a few others to try. This to, is completely voluntary on your end, and and uh, other veterans in the community. Correct? Absolutely, is, absolutely. Wow. We presented it to the Wichita Chamber of Commerce, and the county was involved, and so they've asked us to lead this effort, and so they're also driving companies to us in a sense. And so with our wow. veteran um, focus and in, in, in my experience in this employment space, we've been able to contribute to other companies hiring and retaining veterans. And on the flip side, the second committee we formed had to do with the homeless veteran. And so wow. okay. I was introduced to an organization called Passageways and Passageways uh, owned a private home out in Western Wichita and we can take in nine veterans. And we it's it's religiously based and we make them sign a contract, a personal contract, which basically sure. says you're going to get better, whatever it is that caused them to go homeless, whether it was because they're a, of an addiction, maybe because it was because of financial, Education. any any occasion that it is, we, we bring them in and, and we try to keep them there until they get their feet on the ground. Then we help them get settled into a new government, you know, enabled a program where they can get an apartment or whatnot. We've graduated 74 people from this this home, and not a single one has returned to uh, to to being homeless. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Now that now Passageways is focusing on building a community. We're we're working on buying land in Southern Wichita. We we've got 30 single homes that are already promised to us uh, with some wow. local businesses, and so we're hoping that within about a year to 18 months, we'll have a tiny village. But the difference. In our approach, I think different in most small villages across the country is we're we're looking to make some of these home permanent homes to address the female homeless veteran population because many of them have family members, they have children, and uh-huh. they can't turn to most homeless facilities because they can't take their children with them. So in oh, gotcha. to be completely honest, some turn to some questionable career opportunities that that helps them at least keep their family together and put money on the table or food on the table. I so understood. so we, we've had several female veterans returning to us to help them. And with a single home, 
we can't do it as long as we have at least one male in the in the in the home. So that's why we're really driven to to get this this small community off the ground. That's amazing. Is, is it close to a, a like a, a VA facility as well? Um, well, if we it, get, it, yeah, if we get the land that we've we've made an offer on, I think it's it's roughly five or six miles away from the VA, and so I think oh, wow. I mentioned to you before two additional programs that we're looking, our Veterans Advocacy Board is looking to tackle. One of them would be public transportation for the veterans. So um, we're looking at how we can improve or complement the VA transportation programs that we have through the public transportation systems and with the community. That's amazing. That's, you know, it's funny. The, the next question I had for you was, what is one thing, of, uh, what, is a, what is a company or a nonprofit that you're excited about? But I think you already, you just answered that. That's that's pretty amazing right. that you guys are doing out there with Passages Ways. Uh, how did that get started? Is that like a veteran or how did all that get started? About four and a half years ago, a mother and her daughter were sitting in their respective homes and they both watched the same newscast which highlighted the discovery of a veteran under a bridge. They had found him died because of the, the cold. And um, so that moved them. And they, they did some research. They both quit their jobs and they created this nonprofit. Um, I joined along with a few other veterans uh, maybe about a year after they'd gotten it off the ground and they were renting this, this home. And so with, with our help and, the, and we created a board of directors and I'd say we're about 60-40, 60% are veterans, 40% are not. Um, oh, wow. But, but we, we really work together with the community. And, and this is a real, uh, uh, this community here in the Wichita area looks very favorably upon their veterans. and They really, they really do everything they can to help them. And so um, they have been very gracious in their giving and allowed us to buy that home. And, and now I think we're going to try to rely on their, their, their willingness to give again to see if we can buy this land and build this tiny village. Well, I really hope that's that, that, that happens. Uh, that, that sounds like a really great noble cause. Um, that's really cool. What is one thing that you think a veteran should know about life after service? If you were to, if you were to pass off one thing. So I, I made this video a couple of years ago to support the 22 push up challenge. And, sure. and it's, it's a message that's in there that I would, I would say, needs to resonate through the veteran community. And it goes back to the analogy I gave you about the perimeter. And so in the military, you you rely on those people, some people you don't even know, some people you can't see or communicate to, but you rely on them heavily to enable the purpose of the perimeter, which is to allow people to go through and survive, eat, clean their weapon, sleep, whatever the case may be. And so far too many veterans, when they take off the uniform, they completely forget those people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be those friends and colleagues that you worked with or you fought alongside. In your community somewhere, there's another veteran. And so my, what I think that people need to know is, again, going back to Arlie Permi's quote, is, is reach out, find other veterans in your community. You'll be surprised at the activities that are going on that will help you acclimate and assimilate and or you you'll be surprised that you can help others and together and taking care of each other in that capacity, I think, really would lead to, to removing some of this, you know, the challenges that, that veterans face that sometimes turn into suicide or turn into the homeless situations. And so 
So to reach out, don't forget your, your military buddy or your battle buddy, as we call it in the Army. I was a gunner's mate, Tonkin Golf. Logistics, Ramstein. Medic, Kandahar. As a veteran, it doesn't matter when or where you served. Infantry, Camp Pendleton. Or what you did. The VA has benefits that may be useful to you right now. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www.va.gov. I want to thank John for coming on the show and letting us know some of the great things that they're doing out there in Kansas for our veterans. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is Navy veteran Shannon Kent. Shannon served from 2003 to 2019 and made several combat deployments to the Middle East. Originally from Pines Plains, New York, Shannon came from a family of service. Her father was a New York State Police commander, and her uncle, a firefighter, were both first responders during 9-11. Shannon graduated from Oh man, I hope I get this right. Sisting Mountain Junior Senior High School in 2001 and later enlisted in the Navy in 2003. With the Navy, Shannon completed five overseas combat deployments. In 2007, she worked with the Joint Special Operations Command in Balad, Iraq. She did two more tours in Iraq before deploying in 2012 to Afghanistan. Shannon was recognized for her ability to speak a half a dozen Arabic dialects. As a crypto technician, Shannon was an expert in cryptology and experience in the collection of human intelligence. She gathered intelligence and examined documents, hard drives, and other intelligence found during raids. While working in Syria and in Iraq, Shannon would often work with tribal leaders, merchants, or local government officials to help target leaders of the Islamic State. On January 16, 2019, a suicide bomber killed Shannon and three other Americans at a restaurant in northeastern Syria. She became the first female service member to die in Syria since American forces arrived in 2014. At her memorial, Shannon was posthumously promoted to Senior Chief Petty Officer. Shannon's military awards include the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and the Defense Meritorious Service Medal. She is survived by her husband, Joe Kent, a Green Beret himself. The two met during intelligence targeting training at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, and married on Christmas Eve in 2014. Shannon and Joe have two children together. We honor her service. That's it for this episode of Born the Battle. You can find us on all social media, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Department of Veterans Affairs. You can find us with that blue check mark. If you'd like to email the show, please do so at podcast at va.gov. Let us know how we're doing. Love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening and see you next week.